0: Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves and others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference. And these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by me, Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and Jerry Swigart. And as always, we're going to ease into this week's conversation with a question of the week. It's that uh, time of the week again, my friends, for our question of the week. This is Haley Mitsui, director of formation for the Global Immersion Project. And I'm joined, as always, by my trusty co founders and co hosts Jarrah Swigart and John Huckins um all right gentlemen so our question for this week which is a bit of like a tease and slightly just maybe mean because none of us can actually go anywhere but if you could go anywhere in the world right now where would you be
1: well I'll just make this where my heart is right now um by the time this records, I will be in a PhD program, and the, the intensive was going to be in Amsterdam in January, and I would have loved to be there, because um, Amsterdam is incredible. It's one of the most diverse cities in the world. It's filled with canals like Venice, and it is full of culture and life, and so right now, I'm I would love to be there, or at least be there next month when I would have been there.
0: Yeah, that's a bummer. I think if I could be anywhere, we just moved up to Seattle and we are, we are definitely in the dead of winter. It's pitch black at 430 and pitch black until 8am. So a lot of darkness. So I think I would just want to go somewhere. Also, we moved here from San Diego, so I, I would love to be somewhere in January. Though I'm okay now, but I think in January, February, I'm going to be struggling, and I would love to be in Hawaii. It's basic; it's, like it's a basic answer, but I love Hawaii, and I look—I look like I fit in there, which always makes my heart happy.
2: I might—I might take this in a little bit different direction, friends. You would. Okay. I less less a destination I would just want to be with people. Mm, right now. I don't care where it is. So real. I don't I, I don't care like it's it's a cabin in Colorado, the mountains of Colorado, it's walking the boardwalk in on Maui in Hawaii, it's you know I it doesn't matter there are just there are people that um that Jackie and I cherish so desperately that we have not been able to be in a room with and that's the destination that that's where I would be right now, I think. That's a good one. Yeah. Good I, one. I
0: would probably change my answer to also <laughs> be that. It's, that's so true. So you know, true. So
2: like, I, I literally don't care about the backdrop at this point. Yeah. Give, give, me, a, give me a drab, wood paneled, old, <laughs> cr- old curtained, old, old couched cabin in <laughs> Idaho with people.
1: Rat and crap everywhere. Just, I mean,
2: just let's a, go. Just,
1: Keep it going. Like
2: <laughs> a grill that doesn't work, you know, musty smell, but
1: people. Grizzly bear gnawing when... through the window. Oh, give it to me. Well, speaking yeah, of
2: uh, speaking of people I'd love to be with, we just got to be with one of them. Her name's Ellie Rocher, and uh, she's a Minneapolis-based everyday peacemaker. And uh, she, in this conversation, she takes us on a very, very unique journey. Uh, it's, a ju- it's a journey inward, and, uh, and by the end of it, you're inspired to think about how as we move forward as everyday peacemakers, we can live by the mantra, do less, be more. Let's
1: dive into the conversation. I am thrilled to acknowledge and to thank one of our core sponsors of the Everyday Peacemaking podcast. It's an organization called Respero. They're committed to making safe, life-giving conversations available and accessible to everyone. In short, they offer free counseling and support in those that want to get trained in counseling. And I know for me, this has felt like a uniquely rough year, but if we're honest, uh, every year has ups and downs if we're seeking to fully live towards wholeness. And for me personally, one of the central lifelines I've had is to be in regular counseling, tending to my heart, my head, my soul, aligning values with actions creating space just to get stuff out they can often fester inside and tear me apart so it's been through risparis and their counselors that i've had access to this type of deep care and accompaniment so if you're personally in need of a counselor wanting to grow uh, or just get trained in being a counselor check out Respero.org, where again they offer personal counseling at no cost they offer online courses and workshops and they have counselor training if you feel compelled to actually grow in this way yourself In the end, Respero's goal is to have more and more healthy and healing conversations happening in our world. So check them out, rispero.org.
2: Ellie Rasher, you are on the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast, and we as a team are so, so, so excited to have you. Welcome.
3: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here. Hey,
2: give us, would you give us a little bit of an introduction into who you are, um, as well as your connection with global immersion and the Everyday Peacemaking Movement?
3: Absolutely. My name is Ellie Rocher. I live in the Minneapolis area. Um, I am a practical theologian and a writer here. I have two little boys that I'm raising. And um, I know the Global Immersion Project because I went on an immersion in high school and have been thinking about it ever since. And fast forward to my adult professional life when I was looking for an immersion experience for the youth that I was working with. And global immersion is second to none in what they do in tr- terms of putting people in situations where they get to meet peacemakers, and they get to get uncomfortable and disorient, and and then and then transform um, themselves and their communities as everyday pe- peacemakers. So the youth and the young adults that I work with at Bethlehem Lutheran Church um, did immersions with the Global immersion Project both to the borderlands of San Diego Tijuana and to Israel Palestine. Um, and it has been so fun to continue to walk with those folks.
2: as we as we um, have obviously embarked on this journey and as we grow this movement younger, we look to you and the work that you've done alongside your team, as second to none in the cultivating of young souls and young lives into the peacemaking movement, and so uh, this this is a beautiful friendship, and it's so so mutual, um, and uh, and so fun to now talk um, in this regard. As you know, this this conversation is really about um, what it looks like for everyday peacemakers to be to be waging peace all the time wherever we live, work, and play. And um, obviously, here we are in twenty twenty one and. Um, as, As we're paying attention to all that's going on around us, we recognize that there are interrupted relationships, that people have no idea how to bridge difference with one another. It's a politically charged time. It's a racially divided time. Of course, we're still navigating this global pandemic. And so the, the, we're, we're wanting to have a conversation with you and just even listen in um, from your perspective and your stories as you're paying attention to the divides and the, the interruptions in your everyday life. How are you paying attention to them and how are you tending to them as an everyday peacemaker?
3: Um, I'm going to catch you quick up to the present moment um, to give some background. So like I said, I did my first global immersion type immersion. When I was in high school, I went to Guatemala. And that was the first time at an extremely formidable age that I realized that I was a global citizen and that how I live my life affects people all across the world. Um, How I live matters. And I realized on a much different level how I am part of the dominant culture um, in the United States. I realized that I'm wealthy and that I am white that I'm cisgendered. I realized that I'm Christian and I'm an, an American. I realized I was able-bodied in a way that I had never really thought of before. And those were things that, that, were, that I had at the beginning that were handed to me. And um, I also realized I had two parents who loved me um, and that was gonna set me up to succeed in our systems. And so then I From that point really took seriously the fact that it was my calling to be a boundary crosser and that time in Guatemala um, changed me and made me feel so alive that I feel like I've been seeking that feeling for the rest of my life Um, and so today I, I identify as being a professional boundary crosser and I get to do that as a writer I think that I seek out people who I know will interrupt me um, who I know will challenge how I think and what I think the status quo is. Um, so I got to go to Kenya and sit with girls um, who opened a free free high school um, and soccer team. Um, I get to host a podcast called Unlikely Conversations. and the first season, we put two folks from different faith backgrounds in the room together and had them talk about things that they are passionate about. Um, and Those are just two quick examples, but I'm constantly seeking out people and asking them questions and sitting and listening to them to be interrupted on purpose, because I think I believe that the centripetal force of society is going to keep pushing me back toward um, comfort, um, being asleep. And I want to be awake to my life. And so I'm going to I'm going to cross boundaries that I'm not supposed to cross um, to learn and to grow. And so these detours from my path I have come to recognize as my faith journey.
2: Mm, that mm. it's
3: I'm being called to constantly take detours off of the path um, and cross those boundaries for the betterment of myself and my community.
2: Ellie, let me ask w- was that a practice of your life pre immersion, or d- did the immersion awaken in you this, this, ha- this desire and then what has become a habit of being interrupted, taking detours as a way of formation?
3: Yeah, that was, that was the spark. I will say that there was foundation laid before that I, I went, and that's really important. That's one of the reasons with Global Immersion that we do pre-work before we go on the immersions. Mm-hmm. Um, I say often I was raised by badass feminist Catholic nuns who had set this foundation of Catholic social teaching where I understood um, that the economic systems were violent and that I benefited from them. And so I think that I was prepared for that moment to break open mm. at a depth that I might not have otherwise. However, that that immersion at that age is, was second to none in terms of lighting a fire in me and and having me experience what it feels like to be alive, to be part of a beloved community and to be seeking reconciliation and healing in a way that that was going to become what drove me from
2: that. Yeah, right on
3: you know, after professionally putting myself in places where I'm constantly seeking interruptions and and pushing the levers systemically, um, I'm also being challenged to move closer to like more local interruptions. So one example is back in August, my youngest child's preschool closed to everybody but essential workers. And my oldest son, um, we got his, his kindergarten was full-time online. And one of my childcare, providers decided to move. So I just made the tough decision to resign from one of my jobs. And I um, I have had to be a stay-at-home online kindergarten facilitator um, who does a lot of work at night. And this has really challenged that part that I just said that I identify as a professional boundary crosser who's interrupting and the interruption now are my sons who are the embodiment of joy and delight. And I've realized how attached my ego was to my work. And they are reminding me that my work is to love. And I am very good at loving them. They're very good at loving me back. And so I'm living in a season where I have had to take a step closer, more intimate, and see my peacemaking work as being in my home. And then that has challenged me to go even further, um, to do the peacemaking work inside of my own body. Um, and so that's actually what I want to talk about yeah. today, good, is I good. think that it's really romantic to be to be crossing country borders, right? And we get accolades for doing that. Sometimes the very, very hardest work is to do the piecework inside of our hyper local, Bodies. Mm -hmm. So the more work that I've been doing around the fact that my body is white, the more convinced I am that like this is where I need to turn as a peacemaker to bring healing to my own body so that I can empty myself of whiteness and dismantle white supremacy. If I'm doing that work as a peacemaker, being peace inside of my own body, then I can move out into those other levels of society and be a more effective peacemaker um, at the interpersonal level and at the systemic level. And so I'm really trying to interrupt myself, asking myself what it is like to move through the world with a body that is white. My go-to guy right now is Resmaa Menachem. He's local, he's from Minneapolis as well. He's a trauma therapist. His book is called My Grandmother's Hands. And I would also point people to podcasts that he's done. He has a great episode with Krista Tippett on being. And in that episode, they talk about how elders and communities, children are drawn to elders because elders have done the work of integrating into their own bodies. And children are automatically drawn to that, and that that is our work, that we don't become elders in our community just by getting older. Mm. We have to do the work of fully integrating into the bodies that we are given. And I love that idea. He also has a great conversation with Krista Tippett and Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility*, um, That is super fiery, and I would highly recommend. And the third, I would recommend he does a conversation with Tara Bratch, who is a mindfulness and meditation a um, woman, and that is an amazing conversation as well. So that would give you much more background to some of the things I'm gonna talk about. But he's all about healing so, uh, racialized trauma. And what does that mean for me? Um, what kind of racialized trauma do I have in my own body? Um, well, James Baldwin, who is another huge thinker on this, you know, talks about how it's we don't have a Negro problem, we have a whiteness problem. When white folks can contend with our own whiteness and empty ourselves of it, that's when things get better. He also, James Baldwin also says we won't let go of our hatred because then we'll have to deal with our pain underneath. So I've been exploring where my family came from, what my Irish ancestors were fleeing to get here, how that fleeing has been passed down into my body. What is the history of whiteness and why was that set up as an economic system for me to succeed? It Whiteness was set for some people to succeed economically. It was to break up White European immigrants and and Black immigrants, right? So we don't bond together for class. We break apart, and that pain is is stuck in my body. And Resma says we're not talking about yoga and book clubs here, folks. Which I can say because I lead yoga and I lead book clubs, and I love <laughs> those two things, and they're yeah. very important. But we can't stop there, mm-hmm. right? So um, we're talking about thinking and writing through. Um, the trauma that's been passed down from my white ancestors to my body, mm-hmm. um, so that I can move in my community in a different way.
2: And Ellie, um, I, I can I can only assume that you're about to go here, but just for yeah. those of us who are listening in right now, going okay, what what does that that trauma around whiteness, what does that m- feel like what does that Mm -hmm. look like in my body can you help us understand that
3: so if i were to walk into a space where i am the numerical minority by being a white-bodied person um something happens in my body and part of how you can explain that is what has been passed down to my body through my aristocratic posture right through the fact that my ancestors have had more generations to build up wealth. And so I need to sit with what comes up in my body and um, be critical of it. Rezma talks about the myths that, the, it's a myth that the white body is fragile and bodies of color are dangerous so that we need police bodies to protect us. Those are all myths. And I think that's extremely exciting because my body's not fragile right? And I don't want to believe that myth. And so I have to build up my resiliency by noticing what happens to my body in racialized spaces and contending with that. So I'm doing some somatic body work and writing and journaling around race so that I can move into clean pain um, and do this really, really hard work. So a lot of times white folks, including myself, will jump straight to the, the systemic level, and we'll want to change our policies, which is very, very good, but we'll burn out sometimes because we haven't been coming from a place where there's healing in our own bodies and then the way forward emerges. And so I am a big fan of doing interruptions at the systemic personal and hyper personal level to find a pace that's sustaining for us in the work.
2: Let's talk for a moment when like doing this work and surfacing this kind of trauma and pain in your body, like the. It's that's costly. It's wildly uncomfortable. There are moments you don't want to do the work. Um, There are moments you stop. There are moments where you experience breakthrough. Um, Can can you walk through most specifically the moment when it gets too hard? What do you do then? Uh, Because you are literally like you're contending for restoration in your body, (laughs) right? When it gets too hard, what do you do? And when you do that thing and you experience a little bit of breakthrough, what's that like?
3: So Resma gives a bunch of tools for contending, working through clean pain, right? So everything from mindfulness and meditation, humming, rocking, these things that are actually calming to your body. And I think what works for me is studying the history of whiteness, why whiteness was created and how it has worked throughout history, and knowing that my Irish ancestors weren't considered white. And they had to give up their Irishness to become white. And so that looked like telling them, you drink too much, you have too much sex, you have too many babies, you're too loud. And they got rid of their culture to become white. And so what works for me is, 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 is re-getting in touch with that joy and that ecstasy that, that is asleep in me. And so then there are stakes for me to do this hard work. It is not just about making the world better, of course, but it's so that I can live an awake and joyful life that full circle. I experienced in Guatemala with that community, right? So knowing, um, knowing the stakes, knowing a specific history about my people and what they gave up for economic security and that I now can choose another way um, and come back in touch with my culture and come back in touch with my joy and come back in touch with my humanity.
2: Mm. I love it and, and and you know one of the things that is so rich about this conversation Ellie is oftentimes I think a conversation about peacemaking gets trapped in the systemic space and I think that's I think I mean we would all agree there's a lot of broken stuff around us in, in the systems that make up this world um we also I think spend a lot of time talking about interpersonal peacemaking what does this look between you and I and the interrupted relationships? there's not enough time and energy being spent on this internal peacemaking, uh, re- recognizing that that this the internal peacemaking begets the interpersonal, which begets the systemic work, you know and um, so thank you for guiding us in in that direction um, and bringing this and centering um, this this kind of work for us right now. The last thing I want to ask you because we also understand that everyday peacemakers, um, are oftentimes bringing things to life in the world, right? We're not just contending for restoration and life in these broken things, but but we're we're creating things into the world as well that that contribute to the restorative revolution that we're all a part of. There are two artifacts, um, one of which you mentioned um, in, in the Unlikely Conversations podcast. Talk a little bit about that and. How do you see that as a tool of everyday peacemaking? And then you are right now in the process of launching 12 Tiny Things, which is your next book. Um, talk to us a little bit about the message of that and how you see that contributing to the restorative revolution.
3: Yeah. Um, Unlikely conversations is my dream come true. Every time I'm doing an interview, I pop out of my body and I say, I cannot believe I get to be part of this conversation and listen to this amazing human, right? So in like I said, in the first season, it's on multi-religious faith. And our tagline was was around the spiritual practice of good conversation, right? Mm-hmm. That we are we we have so much work to do in learning how to have a civil conversation with folks. Yes. And so we thought if we could just model this and folks could listen in that that might be really accessible, which is part of the magic that you're doing right here on this podcast. We try to set up conversations that unfortunately are unlikely. Mhm and let people listen in until we can say oh this isn't that hard let me give it a shot i think i learned so much from it um and i think our listeners do too and then the book i wrote out of the same energy that i was talking about today 12 tiny things is all about um, cultivating a micro spiritual practice doing a couple tiny things every day that work for you to keep you awake to your life, um, to make sure that you're curating an intentional life that's rooted in what is important. And some of our early feedback was like, well, this isn't big enough, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the point. Our society says bigger, more, yes. jump yep. to the systems, go. But then that that's when we like we go and we we burn out, mm-hmm. we get overwhelmed. So this book is for folks who are feeling a little overwhelmed or paralyzed by all of the brokenness in the world and starting at the, the micro level. And I'll tell you, we wrote it before COVID and oh my goodness, yeah. do I need it yeah. now. Yeah. I do all of my tiny things every day to get through my day. And yeah. we have to build up that resilience. And so I think it's a little countercultural cultural to start small and it works.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, the the nutrients are found in the micro, the micro practices. I love that language so much. And friends who are listening in, two things. one. Subscribe and um, and listen in on unlikely conversations. Uh, not only are the conversations themselves insightful. But- but that you, you learn about how you too can cultivate these kinds of conversations. And then 12 Tiny Things, I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy and endorsing this book. And um, it is so hyper relevant in this moment in time. Uh, so find it wherever you buy books. Ellie, you are a gift to me, to our team, to the restorative revolution that's afoot around the world. Uh, thank you for, for the gift of your friendship.
3: Absolutely, thank you.
0: Oh man, that conversation, I feel like I could literally be unpacking it for days. Ellie just gifted us with so much. And I I personally wanna just affirm and resonate with her talking about my grandmother's hands, is also a book that I read and I wholeheartedly agree that it's necessary reading for anyone who is wanting to engage with the impact of systemic racism. And 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 all people, I mean, any color of person is impacted when we are, um, groomed into a society that values some bodies more than others. And I, what I was kind of thinking about as she, as she was sharing and talking about, you know, healing ourselves and, um, and and learning how to move through the trauma that we carry in our bodies is that I don't think most people even know notice that they're carrying trauma in their bodies. Um, I, I, I should reframe that. I think most white-bodied people, white people, don't necessarily notice that they're carrying trauma, and she talks about that generational trauma, which is so real, but also so not talked about that I don't think most white people have any concept that that that's what they're carrying with them. And so actually, as she was sharing, I was thinking about, you know, I think in the Old Testament, and then Jesus talks in the New Testament about the greatest commandment of love, Lord, your God with all your heart, soul and mind. And when I read that, I think Heart kind of represents the body and the soul is that intangible. And then obviously our mind. But here in the United States, we really teach people to think only with their minds and to love God only with their minds. If they have correct theology, then they are good Christian. If they have you know, a correct understanding of systemic oppression, then they're good anti-racist. But really, it's actually about embodying our faith embodying anti-racism. And I think of them as actually very similar. I mean, uh, like anti-racism is a part of our Christian journey. So how do we actually learn though, how to get into our bodies? How do we actually notice when we're only loving God with our heads or when we're only engaging conflict or problems with our head? I think that honestly, it starts with as something as small as noticing your breath, noticing if you walk around in your day with your shoulders clenched to your ears, or if you end the day with pain somewhere in your body, and we sort of just pop some Advil and drink some wine and go to bed, you know, we're not taught to be like, ah, why are my shoulders this tense? Or why, why am I always experiencing this pain somewhere? Um, And it can sound a little like wooey, like I think that a lot of people when you when you say like, get into your body, they're like, get away behind me, Satan, I don't know what this voodoo is that you're trying to talk about. It's really just making a practice of being like, your head is where you carry knowledge, your heart is where you carry knowledge, and your body is where you carry knowledge. So how can you tap a little bit into some of these parts of knowing that you don't that you haven't been conditioned to to think with. Like I know we've all mostly been conditioned to think with our heads. So maybe it's just going for a walk and not listening to any kind of music and just noticing your feet touching the ground one after the other. And how does that feel to have the ground underneath you? How does that change the way that you interact with your neighborhood versus when you're just the along listening to your favorite podcasts and you don't even hear the car behind you. You know, it's, I think Ellie's just encouraging us to get out of our heads and into our hearts and into our bodies. And I am a hundred percent behind that message.
1: That's good. And that totally resonates with, um, with some of the ways I was thinking about what she was saying, sharing. I mean, the journey from head to heart that you're talking about Hales, uh, feels like one of the one of the longest, most difficult journeys that we all have to take as human beings, especially those of us raised in Western contexts, where that is amplified as the primary body of knowledge. And, um, last year I walked the Camino de Santiago and that I I have so many memories, especially in the first three days of struggling to get out of my head. Like I, I couldn't get my to-do list to slow down. I couldn't get, get it through my head that my, my, my journey was to simply be, <laughs> to be present. I had to have music in my headphones the whole time. And, and as I, even that walking practice, he's walked us through Hales. It was like with each step, I was learning how to move from my head towards my heart into my body. And it was my um, Portuguese friend who was walking. The, I met him about a week into the Camino named Gaspar. He said, John, you need to, to walk with your heart, not with your feet. Walk with your heart, not with your feet. What would it look like? And that is that journey of don't don't just be paying attention to your destination, be present to what is right in front of you. And Ellie, I think, really helped us, even in her illustration with her kiddos. The gift was she wasn't pulling back from work, she was moving towards her kids, the gift of being present to them and then ultimately be present to herself. And so what what's the way that we can actually um, see even moments like this? during COVID that are just brutal as a gift to draw closer to those we love, draw closer to our heart that exists within us that many of us have blocked out because we remain in our head uh, and and receive all of that as a gift.
2: Yeah. Thanks. You too. I think that's both, both of those are so profound. I mean, I, I was struck in the conversation and, and I, I even asked her a follow-up conversation about it because I'm I'm so intrigued by transformation and how it is that we transform and how it is that we become more integrated and whole and alive. And, um, I, I think as a, as a team, uh, based even on the name, the global immersion project, we center immersion as a really important, even central concept of, uh, of transformation. And I think it's interesting, um, how an immersion in Guatemala, um, how it set a trajectory, a commitment to ongoing immersion as a means of transformation in Ellie's life. You know, she calls herself a professional boundary crosser. And uh, and we've all had the privilege to be in relationship with her and even observe the ways in which she does that, not in an oppressive kind of way at all. Uh, she doesn't do that with violence. She does that with gentleness and grace and um, and finds herself in proximity with people in unique kinds of ways. She's She's that that skill of professional boundary cross, crossing has been honed in her through a lifelong habit of immersion. Um, but but one of the things I was paying attention to, as well, is is oftentimes especially as, and I resonate as a dominant culture U.S. American Christian, you immerse into something as radical as the injustice in Guatemala, and you think that the next immersion also has to be into this big huge issue of injustice and then the next and then the next and then you get you think that the way forward is to attain the kinds of skills and tools to fix what's happening in Guatemala or to fix this big systemic thing that's happening in the United States or whatever it is I think I think my observation the longer I do this work of peacemaking as I talk to sage peacemakers their initial immersions uh actually take them on the journey that we see Ellie on. They take the immersions go from these big systemic issues into these micro immersions into their own souls. But the sage peacemakers, they don't just end there. That's not that's not a destination. They recognize that if they're going to actually be a part of joining God and others and remaking what's broken in our world, that micro immersion is going to be the thing that is gonna reshape their understanding of themselves, of God, of others, of creation, of the world, of interpersonal relationships, and how in collaboration with other integrated people, we're gonna start to actually remake the broken things that are around us. And and so this, this trajectory of transformation through ongoing immersion, becoming professional boundary crossers, now boundary crossing into her own soul, um, and how that's, that's actually mobilizing her into more health and more sustainability as an everyday pra- uh, peacemaker outside of her body, I think is is
1: really of note. Yeah, if I could jump off on that too. I, I, it's, she mentioned at one point that, uh, that we all have um, experienced people around us who have actually gone on that journey you're talking about, Hails at the top, that journey that I'm talking about, Head to Heart, Jer those that have integrated their life of immersion into reshaping how they see themselves and their soul. And and she talked about this language of eldership. And and who are those people who have gone before us, who have actually gone on this transformative journey, come to terms with who they are, made their home in their heart, in their head, and in their bodies. And we see that they are more generous, often more open-minded, always willing to change, to adapt. And those are the people we're drawn to, like her kids are drawn to those folks we are drawn to those folks and we have a gift now to, to imagine and name who those people are in our lives so we can go on this journey uh not on our own but with some people that give us handrails for that
2: right on ellie thank you for teaching us that micro immersions lead to macro restoration that's a that's a gift to this movement and so friends god's restoration is underway go and participate in it and know that you're not alone
1: For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.